Uh, we'll start something a little bit new this morning, or at least begin to transition into some new things. Um, we spent the last few weeks talking about like uh, loving the church and what everything the church is all about. And I want to begin to diverge from that a little bit this morning and, and take off into some new territory. Yeah, so for the past few weeks we've been talking about uh, loving the church um, and uh, we've been trying to lay out at least some vision for what church actually is. Uh, church is more than the place where a bunch of people come and listen to a few people do everything. Uh, the New Testament model of the church is uh, it's a place where everyone is a part of Jesus' work and by far the most prevalent metaphor for what the church is in the New Testament, uh, the one that shows up over and over again, is the image of the church as a body, right? Everybody knows this. It's in, it's in Romans 12, it's in, it's in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, and 13, it's also in, in Ephesians 4. This image of body keeps coming, keeps coming up. And one of the reasons that it's so insightful and one of the reasons that it keeps coming up is because it really lays out for us in a really simple picture what the church is. The church is a place where people are connected there's a, there's a connectedness issue at the church. Like, you can't, you can't go on and increase in love for Jesus and become a more isolated person. That doesn't work in the kingdom of heaven. The more that I increase in my love and devotion for Jesus, the more His kingdom rule becomes a, a present reality in my life, the more I become connected, not only to Him, but to the people who are sitting with me. I, I, you know, I, it's impossible to say, Jesus, I love you, and I hate all of these people. You know, it's impossible. It's, it's fashionable these days for that to be the hard attitude. It's fashionable to say, Jesus, I love you and I hate all these people. But it's actually impossible. The more that His rule and His reign, the more that His kingdom becomes a present and living reality in my life, the more that I become connected not only to Him, but I could become connected to people in the purple chairs. So there's this image of body, and the image of body shows us connectedness. Uh, and it speaks to community. It also speaks to a, a kind of community, though. It speaks to teamwork. See, the, the church is not the place where I do everything. The truth of the matter is, I can do very little. Uh, number one, I'm not very smart. Uh, number two, I'm a terrible planner. Uh, and, and number three, I, I just, I'm not very gifted. I happen to be the leader of the church. I don't know how that happened. But, but the truth of the matter is, that there's a teamwork aspect, that, and, and we see it in this picture of body. Like, you know, it, if your body was all elbows, it'd be not much happening there, you know? There's all kinds of, and it's not just, it's not just a picture of teamwork, but it's a, it's a picture of unity based upon diversity. So the body isn't all one hand, it's not a bunch of hands, the body is a couple hands, a couple feet, some knees, all kinds of muscles. Daniel could give us a list of the muscles, we'll test them on that later, studying the doctor. But, he thinks I'm joking. Yeah. Um, but the body is this picture of unity, but it's a unity based upon diversity. So in the church, the church, the point is not conformity. The, the, the point of, of church is not that everyone looks and acts exactly the same. The point of the church is it's a safe place where people can actually be radically different but held together by this one revelation. And it's the revelation that Jesus Christ is the saving Son of God. Beyond that, there's room. There's all kinds of room. And the worst part is, is that for a lot of us, the church has been the place where we've been felt, we've felt most constricted, and most forced to conform, ah, all life just come right out of us, right? 
That's not the way it works at all. So we have this picture of body. It's a picture of community. It's a picture of teamwork. It's a picture of diversity. And right along with that, Jesus says the church is my body. And here's the thing about Jesus and his body. How many of you guys realize that Jesus is not dead? I mean, you know, it, it, it's not one of those main things in Christianity, Jesus not being dead. It's kind of a big deal. Like if he's dead, we're screwed. Some of you are like, man, the pastor just said it's good. Church, what's that? Yeah, so this, this deal that Jesus is not dead, it's a really big deal. And we're a part of his body is what he says. He says, you're a part of my body, and not only that, but I'm not dead. How many of you know that people who are not dead tend to move? How many of you know that people who are not dead tend to do things? How many of you know that people who are not dead tend to get out and get with it, right? So what's the point? The point is, Jesus isn't dead. We're a part of his body. And Jesus is out and about and he's doing things. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus is out and about and he's on mission. And what that means for you and I is this. If we're going to be a part of Jesus' body, then we're going to be out and about and we're going to be moving and we're going to be on mission. And the truth of the matter is, is you can't divorce mission from church. You can't. Just because we get together, just because most of the people like each other most of the time, just because there's a reasonable amount of harmony in the room, it doesn't make it a church. If we lose that sizzle of, of mission, if we ever lose that thing that takes us uh, from being outward and being gatherers, then we've somehow radically divorced ourselves from the living, moving body of Jesus. He's on the move. Not only that, but because he's on the move, and because you're a part of his body, he wants you to be on the move. And let me just break it down one step further. Because Jesus is on a mission, and because you're a part of his body, you have a mission in life. And can I tell you something? Everybody in the room has a different mission. Everybody in the room has a part to play. And this is one of the major issues in life, is knowing the part you have to play. You have to know the part you have to play. You have to know if you don't know the part that God has laid out for you, you will live the most frustrated, depressed life ever. See, a life without purpose is a life that swings the door to depression wide open. Like you have to be, you have to be on mission. You have to be, you have to know your calling. You have to know your destiny. You have to know what you're called to do. You know, I meet men sometimes, and um, uh, you know, occasionally because I'm pastoring and hanging out with people, I meet men who don't have jobs. You know what I found out about men who don't have jobs? Men who don't have jobs are depressed. Why? Because men were made to go to work and accomplish something and get it done. If you don't have a job, you will, you will suffer. But there's even bigger issues than that. If you're not connected to the moving body of Jesus, and if you're not connected to his mission on the earth, if you don't know whether you're a thumb or an elbow or an eyeball and what it is that you're supposed to do, you have just opened the door to defeated depression in your life. You have to know what you're called to do. What's, what's crazy is most of the people I meet don't know what their peace is. That's a huge issue. It's something the Lord wants to speak to this church. You have to know. You, you should be able to tell somebody in 10 seconds what your, what your part to play is. See, everyone's called to play. And if we don't know 
what our part is, it's like standing at the mailbox waiting for UPS to show up. You know that feeling? It's a horrible feeling. It's the exact same thing as not knowing what you're supposed to do. Spend your whole life waiting at the mailbox. Life goes on and happens. The mailman, he'll come at some point, maybe. <coughs> The truth of the matter is, is that everybody in the room instinctively knows this. Everybody in the room, not just in this room, but in rooms all over America, everybody knows that they're called to do something. Every, everyone lives with, that, with that, that sizzle on the inside that says, I'm called to more than this. But you realize that even people who don't know Jesus, they live with that sizzle that says, there has to be more life in that. Like 40 hours a week and come home, there's got to be more life in that. Everybody, like people who hate Jesus, people who hate God, people who hate co the concept of God, they go home at night and before they go to sleep, they're haunted with, there has to be more life in this. Until you get a hold of that, the door to all kinds of just Defeat is opening your life. There's a few things we know for sure. This is where the we'll transition into good news here, okay? A few things we know for sure. First thing that we're called to, and I love this, and I've just been meditating on it more and more in, in Romans in the past few weeks. It's just a little more throwaway verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says that. That we're all, we've all been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. See, everybody in here, uh, God has it on His calendar that you would eventually end up looking just like Jesus. God has it on His calendar that every single person in here would eventually end up being like the Lord, uh, sound like the Lord, look like the Lord, act like the Lord. We all have a part to play in, in, in bearing His image. Y'all remember those little, those little wristbands, WWJD? And it came out, everybody thought it was cool, and everybody thought it was lame, and everybody thought it was cool again, and everybody gave up, right? It's actually not a bad question, you know? You're conformed, you're predestined to be conformed to the likeness of the Son. You know, what would Jesus do? Not a bad question. That's one of those things that should be seared on the inside of every single person in here. What would Jesus do? I'm moving toward being the kind of person who can manifest what Jesus would do in any moment, any situation. That's one of the columns. Here's another general column. You guys know this one. It's out of Matthew 28. It's the Great Commission. We can put it up on the big screen. Jesus says to his disciples, right before he leaves the planet, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. See, everybody in here has this call to be gatherers. See, I, I, I read this, and what I see is the call to go and be a gatherer. To go and gather people who are not in God's family, to go, like Sam was singing this morning, we're no longer orphans, we're no longer prisoners. Everybody in here has a unique and specific call uh, to go and be a gatherer into God's family. Everybody in here, for the most part, 
knows Jesus and has been adopted into his family. And so, in the most generic, in the most general sense, everybody in here, uh, your call and mission in life. I mean, it'll manifest itself in a hundred, even a thousand, maybe a million different ways. Just to go and, and bring people into the reality that you are in So the number one call is to live in that reality yourself. You can't gather people into things you don't live in. So we're called to be gatherers. They're added to family. But one of the questions we have to ask beyond this most general call that Jesus gives us is, what's my role in discipling nations? What's, what's, how do I add to this? How am I gathering people? How does he want me to gather people? Can I tell you something? we got a room, probably 200 people here this morning. You know, uh, one of the things that Jesus isn't looking for is he's not looking for uh, 200 uh, preachers who like go into churches and preach. It's not one of the things he's looking for. But he's looking for everybody in here to be that. Doesn't necessarily mean full-time ministry. So the question is, do I know what my role is? Not only that, but if, if the Lord Jesus is faithful to give us this big call, he'll be faithful to show you your, your, your unique role in the big call. If he's faithful to give the call, if he's faithful to extend the family, then he'll also be faithful to speak to every single person in here. I do want to tell you one of the, one of the main ways that you can know uh, your call and your role and your peace. One of the main ways that you know your call and your role and your peace is by the desire that's already in your heart. You just have to get honest enough with yourself and say, what is it that I really desire? See, the scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord and your desires. I'm not going to teach on that this morning, you know I want to teach on that. But there's, there's, I do want to say this, there's, there's a really powerful place for desire. See, God, God looked at Adam and Eve in the garden. This is one of the most profound scriptures. And he says, I want you two to be fruitful and to multiply, rule the earth and subdue it. It's the big call, right? How did they do it? They were led by desire. How, 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 did, they, how did they become fruitful? And multiply. You realize that God tells them to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and rule it. And He never tells them one single thing about sex or sex ed. They don't have any, any awkward diagrams, no weird conversations. There was no sex ed class. No. What that tells me is this that God will put the big call out, and on the inside, He's naturally implanted desire already on the inside of you. And one of the things that we've heard over and over in the church is, we need to run away from our desires and suppress our desires. And I want to be the pastor who tells you we need to run into our desires. Are there destructive desires? Of course. We don't have to go on about that. But you already know probably you all. You just have to be honest enough with yourself to admit that that may be what the Lord wants from you. Let me put it to you this way. If money were no option and fear were nowhere in the room, what would you do with your life? If you, if you hate Monday and you live for Friday, you're probably not in the right place. See, I love my job. It's a hard job, but I love my job. Now, one of the things I've seen in just reading the scriptures 
is that when it comes to fulfilling this great call in Matthew 28, that when people actually begin to take Jesus seriously, when they begin to move in all of this, that the story gets really heavy. The story is really, really heavy. The book of Acts is the most scary and encouraging book in the entire Bible. Here's the thing I want to tell you this morning. Is that the book of Acts isn't their story. It isn't some historical story for people who lived a long time ago in the past and who are now dead. It's actually our story. It's the pattern of life. It's actually what normal church looks like. Anything that deviates from anything in the book of Acts is not normal. Even if it happens every single Sunday at the church you grew up in. You know? The book of Acts as a whole is our story. It's the hectic story of people who begin to process going that Messiah is everywhere. One little example. This isn't so hectic, but it really speaks to what is normal. In Acts chapter 13, a couple throwaway verses, it says that in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. And while they were fasting, the Spirit said to them, grab from me Paul and Barnabas. One of the things that normal church should have in it is not just teachers, but it should have prophets. But almost none of the church realizes that a part of the normal church is the prophetic voice. If we don't have the prophetic voice, then one of the things we lose is... is the unfolding courage and encouragement that comes from the voice of the Lord in the moment. It's a normal church. It's part of the processing of this hectic story. The other thing I've noticed about this, this hectic outpouring that comes from Matthew 28 that expands into, into the rest of the book of Acts is that in order for it to become a living reality in the communities in order that we live in, in order for it to become a living reality, in our own life, this kind of story that God is beginning to call us into requires great boldness and it requires great courage. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there are no cowards in the book of Acts. There might be one. Her name was, her name was Sophia. She ended up dead. So she's the exception that proves the rule. There are no cowards in the book of Acts. In order for us to begin to cooperate God with our life calling, in order for us to begin to cooperate God with God for our part of the mission, in order for us to be able to walk out our, our destiny and begin to move in our purpose, it will require great boldness and courage. I want to tell you, one of the things that, uh, that, that marks the true Christian is courage. So a lot of times we could do this. We could play this little game. I could say, what is a Christian like? And everyone in the room would most likely answer like this. Well, a, a true Christian you know, is sweet, and a true Christian is gentle, and, and a, a true Christian is, is real nice, and they're kind, and they're helpful. And, um, and, and a true Christian will, um, will be nice to you and invite you over to their house. And one of the things that never makes the list is boldness and courage, but it's one of the most obvious things from the, from the scriptures. There are no cowards in the book of Acts. And the reason there are no cowards is because it takes boldness and it takes courage to walk out your life calling and your mission. And one of the things that the Lord wants to say to us this morning is, it's time to be renewed with boldness. One of my favorite Proverbs lately is, 
Proverbs 28, verse 1. We can put it on the big screen. The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So this, is, this is part of the DNA of the person who's been touched by Jesus. There are no cowards in the book of Acts, and there are remarkably few cowards anywhere in all of Scripture. And here's one of the things that you'll notice when you encounter someone who's fearful and afraid in Scripture. Most, most of the time, they go through a powerful transformation, and God changes them into a crazy different person so they can become a part of his call and his mission and his work. Think of Gideon, right? Judges chapter 6. Gideon is literally in a, in a well. He's in a wine press. He's down in a hole. Threshing wheat. How many of you know you don't thresh wheat in a wine press? And the reason that he's threshing wheat in a wine press is because he's completely afraid that the enemies that have overrun Israel are going to find him and steal his crops from him. So see, this is what's happening at that time. At that time, you know, even when the Jews would, were, were fortunate enough to, to have a crop, the enemies would come in right at harvest time and then just take the crop from you. They didn't ask, they just took it from you. And so Gideon has harvested his wheat, he's gone into the wine press to to not, not be seen by his enemies. And then all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord shows up. And this is what the word of the Lord is to Gideon, the afraid guy who's in a wine press. Behold, mighty man of valor. Like, there's, there's very few cowards in all of Scripture. And even those guys get transformed. And then just a few chapters later, Gideon is leading 300 men against an army of 150,000. And they don't shoot one bow and arrow. They don't hack anybody with an axe. All they do is they go out and they take some lamps and they take some pottery and they break it and, they, and everyone dies except for those guys. How many of you know like if you're going to go to a fight you need lots of people so like 300 is not enough and like a lamp and some pottery isn't enough either. You need machine guns. <laughs> See but it's, it's one of the subtle things the scripture is trying to tell us about the kind of DNA that, that gets inside of the person who's been touched by God. The kind of DNA that gets inside of a person who's been touched by God manifests itself in courage and boldness. And then there's Esther. She's like a 16-year-old Jewish girl from nowhere. And the country's been completely overrun. She's living in captivity. And the king notices that she's kind of good-looking, so he kind of calls her over. And her uncle goes and says, hey, what you don't understand is we're all about to die. We're about to get executed. There's a major thing going to go down, and here's what has to happen. You have to go in, and you have to talk to the king and save the country. And a 16-year-old Jewish girl, up to this point, whose only qualification has been she's pretty, goes in and saves the entire Jewish people. So it takes courage. It takes courage. It takes boldness. There's something on the inside that has to happen. A part of our DNA. And the disciples, they were all fearful. They were in the upper room until the Spirit of God touched them and new life was resurrected in their own heart. They were all hanging out because in the upper room praying because they were pretty sure that someone was going to come in and kill them, just like Jesus. So the Spirit of the Lord touched them. Go out in the streets. 
and the guys who are most afraid become the guys who are most courageous and most bold. So Peter stands up in front of, in front of a, a crowd of who knows how many, and 3,000 people come to know Jesus. And then the very next thing, that's Acts chapter 2, then the very next thing that happens in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to prayer, and there's a lame guy. And the lame guy says, hey, I need some cash. He's begging. And, and Peter's response to him is so, it's so bold. It's so courageous. He looks at him and says, I have no money. But I'll tell you what I do have. I have healing. Get up. How many of you have ever said that? Wheelchair guy. I don't have any money. Here's what I've got, wheelchair guy. I've got cash. It's healing, actually. Pop up. Anybody ever done anything like that? Oh, my gosh. And then they get in crazy trouble because the whole city gets stirred. And then here we have We have Peter and John. They're total bumpkins. They've only fished. They've never studied. They don't know anything. They're from the, they're from the sticks. And now they're in the biggest city in all of, all of Jerusalem. I mean, they're like, they're like from Black Nat. They're like from out where, they're out from where me and Kevin live. They're dudes from Black Nat. They, they, don't, they don't know anything. And they find themselves in New York City at the mayor's office. And the mayor says, you guys are ruining my city. You have to stop preaching. And they said, we will not stop preaching. And then, in fact, Peter starts up again. The Spirit of the Lord comes on. And he starts preaching. And you know what Peter's message always is? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you guys killed him. Go and read the sermons in the book of Acts. They are not like sermons today. It's not about have a happy marriage. It's you guys killed the Son of God. Long awkward pause. Long awkward pause. Long awkward. And repent so that times of refreshing can come on you. That's the message. You know, I mean, it's like, it is bizarre. It's incredibly bold. And then I want you to, I think we have it up here. Put it on the, this is, look, this is the response to the boldness of Peter and, and John. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So there's something that happens. You get touched by Jesus. One of the things that should happen is boldness and courage should be a part of your everyday life. Boldness and courage. It's a really good deal. You realize that when Mother Teresa was 16, she left Romania and she moved to Calcutta. Never went back. That's, that's I, I don't care who you are. I don't care what time you're born. That's 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 courage. You know? Some of the most courageous believers in all of all of history have been the Moravians. You guys know anything about the Moravians? They're like they're like basically the Germans. If it wasn't for the Moravians, you and I probably wouldn't be here believing in Jesus the way we do today. And the Moravians, this is what they would do. They were some of the some of the very first modern missionaries. And this is how they did missions. They were so committed and touched by the love of God that when they decided to go out, they sold themselves into slavery. And they packed everything they had in a wooden box because they knew that they were going to be buried in it. So there's something on the inside. Something about courage. 
<laughs> Just so you know, like, cry here is not my notes. I've seen the Steve Martin Yeah, the Moravians would sell themselves into slavery. They built wooden caskets for themselves and they put all their belongings in it and then they would sell themselves because they know they were, that's where they were headed. You know? It's courage. It's boldness. I can tell you from my own story. Um, one of the first things that happened to me when I became powerfully touched by the Lord was fear left me. Um, when I was in middle school, I was, I was literally possessed by timidity. That's all I can tell you. So, I don't know. I, some of you have a hard time living this, but I'm actually really tenderhearted. Um, I did just cry, by the way. <laughs> but I'm actually, I'm actually really tenderhearted. When I was in seventh grade, I was just so gripped with all kinds of insecurities that even when we had a, a, a like a class assignment to get up and give a like a book report, and it, you didn't have to like speak, you just had to read your paper in front of the class. I, I would. I mean, I fell apart. I couldn't do it. I mean, I got zeros. I would try. I would try in front of everyone, which was even more embarrassing. It made it worse. I was like that in eighth grade. But then a little bit later, I got powerfully touched by the Lord, and I just got powerfully baptized in His love. And when that happened, not, not only did gifts of the Spirit get released in my life, but something just got completely severed. I mean, completely severed. And... Fear just got taken right off of me. It's never been there since. Does that mean I don't get a little squirrely and nervous sometimes? Well, of course not. That's just silly. But I'm not controlled by it anymore. Boldness and courage is part of what it means. I love it. Hey, will you put that, uh, that proverb back up? I love this proverb. Because it just, it just says it in one one sentence. It says the wicked man flees though no one pursues. See, the wicked flee because they live with a great sense of their own guilt. They're being hunted by the past and they have to run. See, but the, the righteous are bold. And the reason that the righteous are bold is because they've had all their guilt removed and all their sin washed. See, here's the deal with God. And by the way, He's the only one who can fully judge and punish. If he has spoken a cleansing word over your life, what else is there to fear? Like if the only one who can forever send you out of his presence has spoken a cleansing and healing word over your life, what else is there to fear? If the only one who can hunt you isn't hunting you, then why do you run? If the only one who can hunt you isn't hunting you, then you become a hunter. You become a lion. How many of you understand that nothing hunts the lion? I've watched enough animal planets know there's nothing out there hunting lions. Saw this the other day. This big leopard. How many know that the leopards are not small either? They're scary. I don't want to see one. I mean, I want to see one, but maybe through binoculars. <laughs> yeah, saw this on Animal Planet the other day. The leopard kills this antelope and somehow drags it up in a tree. I don't know how that even happens, okay? <laughs> drags an antelope up in the tree. You know why she drags the antelope in the tree? Because if a lion finds it, the lion's going to take it. Why? Because nothing hunts the lion. 
You know what the, then you know what happened after that? The mama lion, guess what she did? She went up the tree and took it. <laughs> and lions don't even climb trees. Why? Nothing hunts the lion. If the only person who could condemn you, if the only person who could judge you, if the only person who could hunt you has decided not to hunt you but to pursue you and bring you into his kingdom, if the only person who's decided not to judge you has brought you into his family, you're no longer hunted, you've become the hunter. So where does courage come from? It comes from having the cleansing word of God spoken over you. Some of you are thinking, I'm really timid though. I'm not really a talker. Well, this is what I want to say. First thing I want to say is this, is that courage isn't about being a jerk. See, courage isn't about being a jerk, and it's not about being bullheaded, and it's not about being brash, and it's not about being a buzzkill at parties. <coughs> courage isn't even about being the kind of person who's free from absolutely all of the fear. Courage is not being controlled by fear. That's what courage is. You might still have fears. You might still have some anxieties, but you're not controlled by them. My fears don't tell me what I can't do. They lead me into where I'm supposed to go. That's the difference. The only thing that controls me is his word, his plan, his mission over my life. Courage is living out of love. I don't know what happened with this. <laughs> see, see, courage isn't about being a jerk. Courage is about living out of a place of love. And this is really important because even quiet introverts can be bold and courageous because love knows no bound. This is what the scripture says. The scripture says that perfect love, what? Cast out all fear. What's, what's the issue when it comes to having boldness and courage growing in life? It's love. See, I will be afraid to the extent that I'm unaware that he perfectly loves me. And not just here, but in my heart. To the extent that I don't feel his love, to the extent that I do not feel his affections, to the extent that I don't feel his perfect pleasure over my life, I will not be bold, I will not be courageous. The only person who can walk in boldness and courage is the person who knows that their father absolutely loves them just the way they are. You realize that just the way you are right now, you make God so happy. Like if you never change one more single thing about you, even the thing that drives you crazy, even the thing that you stay up at night, even the thing you've repented for a hundred times, if it never changes, he will, he will delight in you no less. Until I feel that affection on my life, boldness and courage, Will not go. See, one of the things we have to realize is that when we come into contact with God, we come into a raging fire of affection. When I come into contact with God, I come into contact with a raging fire of affection. And it's not intellectual alone, it is felt. I need to feel the affections of Jesus in my life. One of the unfortunate things I've experienced in my life is that usually the smart kids have a hard time feeling the affections of Jesus. Is it really about what I can understand at all? It's about feeling His great love for me. 
when you come into contact with God, you come into a raging inferno of desire. And it, it burns away everything that's in the way of his love touching you. Every single thing. It, it's like, have you guys seen them, seen them um, purify gold? They put gold in the hot fire. All the dross comes out. Hotter the fire, the purer the gold. It's that God's love it just it burns over. And one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to release a burning, raging fire of his love over your life. So that everything that stands in the way of courage and boldness and joining with his mission gets burnt off. Hear me? So if I'm loved by God, then what is there to fear? If I'm richly loved by the generous Father, what can I actually lose? It's kind of a big one, right? And if I'm valued by the creator of the universe, who can steal from me with their opinions? You understand that value is determined by what someone's willing to pay. I believe in the free market. Value determines, value is determined by what someone is willing to pay. That's what it's worth. Well, if the God of heaven was willing to spill his very own son's blood for you and I, that makes you and I treasure. It makes us treasure. Like, it's hard to believe sometimes. It's like, I feel like the dirtiest person. I don't know about you guys. Sometimes I feel like the dirtiest person. Except that, except that the fact that the father didn't just send his son to say, he didn't come to give us a kick in the pants, you know? It's just not who Jesus is. Jesus shows up, gives us his blood, cleanses us, makes us right with the Father. What that means is we're treasured. On the day that I feel the works, I'm treasured. I'm the apple of his eye. Great scripture comes out of Zephaniah. We read it this morning. This is an incredible scripture. This is how the Lord feels about it. It says, The Lord your God is with you. His mind is said, He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you and sing. Like, like even now, like on your, or in your worst moment or in your worst day, the mighty, I want you to see this. It's not just gentle Jesus. Quiet as a lamb who sings over you. It's the mighty warrior God who has salvation in his hand and who sings over you. That's how, that's how he feels about us. How many of you know that you sing songs when words aren't enough? Like when, when spoken word simply isn't enough, you will start singing. There's something beyond like black and white on the page. And it's a song. God's feelings for his people are so great that it, he, can't, he can't even talk about it. He has to sing. And he sings it over us. It's one of the reasons that worship is such an important part of what we do around here. Because when we enter into worship, when we begin to sing to him, we begin to at least quiet ourselves for a moment to come into this heavenly song. It, it's the reason that sometimes the guys do really weird, strange things on stage. It's the reason that sometimes Hannah and Sam won't sing the lyrics that everyone else is doing this to. Because worship is supposed to be this interaction. 
We sing, he sings over us. By the way, he's always the person who's been singing first. So he sings to us, and we just, we just begin to respond to him. He sings to us, and we begin to respond to him. How many of you have ever been here at the vineyard and in the middle of worship, you just felt like you were going to fall flat on your face because like some heavy blanket of God's love just fell on you? You know? Come on. That's the point. If you've never felt that, then you need to get a grip on life and let yourself. See, a lot of times we don't let ourselves because that's not what's supposed to happen in church. It's supposed to be quiet at church. Everything's supposed to be just... You see me or any of my problems, I'm going to be an invisible person here. Just getting out. I can go home guilt free. I've done my God thing and go back to work. Living a meaningless life that I hate. I'm being funny, but I'm being serious at the same time. Like there's something more. He's singing over us. See, his affections transform and they break the power of the lies of the unknown we believe. See, love dismantles the power structure of fear because love always empowers trust and it places us beneath the shadow of his wings. Love empowers trust and it places us in the shadow of his wings. And Psalm 91 says that if you're in the shadow of his wing, that a thousand can fall off your right and 10,000 on your other side. So a natural disaster that kills 11,000 people can not, won't come near you when we rest in his love. That's a powerful word. See, one of the things that happens when I encounter the love of God, I eventually realize that he's never going to leave me or forsake me. So you'll, you'll, be a, you'll be an afraid person until you realize the Lord really isn't ever going to leave you. Trust won't grow until that revelation takes root in your heart. It's, it's not an accident that when Jesus gives his kingdom call to go make disciples in Matthew 28, that the last line of the book is, I'm never going to leave you. You know why? Because if there's any chance that he's going to leave you, the mission will not happen. Because fear has room to grow. The only place that fear can't grow is in the heart that knows he will never leave you. And not just he will never leave you, but he will never lose interest in you. Not just he will never lose interest in you, but he will never stop singing his love song over my life. You know? A lot of the ladies like the way that sounds. A lot of men are like, dude, I don't know if I want Jesus singing love song over my life. I just want to tell you, you got to get over it. I want the Lord to sing his love song over my life. I want him to sing his affections over my life. If that's not macho enough for you, you need to redefine macho. You need it. We need to hear the Father sing his love over our life. Anything short of that leaves room for fear to grow in our garden. Yeah. So the warrior saving God, he begins to sing his love over his children. And because he's a warrior God, he begins to make war upon his enemies, the enemies of his children. That's why I worship such a big deal. He's singing over us. We've got to respond. How many of you know that, that every single person will release the fullness of their heart in some way? 
every person in here, and every person who's not in here, and every person who lives in the world, if you will release what your heart is full of. You absolutely will. If your heart is full of bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness, you will release it, and it'll probably show up in your body. It'll absolutely kill you. I can't tell you how many times, I mean, we've seen this so many times that we've been praying for the sick. I can't tell you how many times we've had people come to us with massive, like, like debilitating arthritis. And the issue is not arthritis. The issue is bitterness and unforgiveness. Bitterness rocks the bones. That's what the scripture says. It's powerful. Everybody's releasing what's inside of their heart. For our worship is such a big deal. We release inappropriate things in our heart. And we become empowered with boldness and courage to, to fulfill our life mission. So those who have, who have most encountered the love of God are those who are most able to love. His love empowers our weak and faint hearts to live. See, true love, true love is all about having a posture towards giving. When you, have a, when you have a life and a heart posture that's toward giving, it's evidence that you're free from fear because fear is always concerned with me. And so it's always concerned with receiving. This is why fear and boldness and courage are such a big deal. Not only that, but his love satisfies like no food or drink could ever satisfy. You need to realize, this is, no, this, is, this is a really important section of Scripture. We're not going to look at it today, but I just want to mention it. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. And this baptism is really a picture of not just water baptism, but it's a picture of spirit baptism. Because when Jesus comes out of water, the Holy Spirit comes on, and it says remains. Okay? Water baptized. The guy who didn't need it, did it. Spirit comes down, remains on him. But it isn't just that. Voice out of heaven says what? This is my beloved son. And I'm well pleased with him. The Father begins to speak his love and his affection and his affirmation over Jesus. Then what does Jesus do? He begins his ministry. Jesus did no ministry, no miracles, no anything until he was baptized with power. But it isn't just a baptism of spirit power, of power. It's mostly a baptism of the Father's love. The Father begins to speak his word and his affirmation over Jesus. And the very next thing that Jesus does in Luke chapter 4, it's so strange. Jesus goes on a 40-day fast. He doesn't eat. Why did Jesus not eat? Because his heart was fully satisfied. Can I tell you something? We don't, we, don't, we don't fast to get full. We fast from fullness. I'm telling you right now, the, the scripture, this whole thing of like, you know, I'm going to fast so I can meet more of God. I'm telling you, that's only about half true. The other part of it is, is, is that fullness leads me into this place where I can walk right into the desert and I can say, God, you are better than bread. You are better than water. You satisfy me to the point I need nothing. And it becomes a prayer declaration to the Lord. It's not about proving anything. It just becomes a prayer declaration to the Lord that says, you satisfy me like nothing else can satisfy me. You know, I've wasted my whole life trying to pursue and gain and grab and stick into my pantry. God, you're the one who does it. You know, there's, there's, something, there's something about the, the spoken word of the Father over you. You have to know it. It's the reason that in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is in the desert, that the, the devil comes and tangles with Jesus. And what does he tangle with Jesus about? Identity of Son. He says, if you are the Son of God. What did the Father just speak in Luke chapter 3? 
You are my beloved son. I'm telling you, the devil's even then beginning to try to plant so and plant and so seeds of fear. If Jesus didn't, if, if he even doubted that he was the son, not just the son, but the beloved son. It's not just an identity issue alone. It's it's a, the affections of God. The number one way to grow fear, take you off of your life mission, is to get you and, is the devil's plan is to get you and I out from underneath of feeling the affections of God towards us. Here's the real church. Every, every single one of us are deeply loved. Even in our worst moments, we're deeply loved in the churches and whatever. One, one of the first scriptures that I ever memorized as a, as a kid was, was Romans 5.8. And it says, that, it says that God demonstrates His love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died. I mean, that's the kind of love that the Lord has. It's this, it's this active and pursuing love. See, God demonstrates His love. It's an active love. It's always on the move. Not only that, but God's love is preemptive. Even, even before you or I were on the planet, God was already in love with you and making plans. He's got a preemptive love. He's got an active love. And not only that, but God's love is present. It's not just, it wasn't just demonstrated back then when He hung on the cross. We have to get, we have to get older. Sometimes we think, oh, that was just how God felt like back then in that moment. No, that's how he feels all the time. Mm -hmm. He's just, he's absolutely convinced that you and I are worth it. He's the kind of person who demonstrates his love. And so we enter into his love by responding to the Son. See, that's the only way that we can enter into the, into the love of the Lord is by beginning to respond to the, to the Son. He loves and we respond. If you're married, you know about this little cycle. It goes like this when it comes to love and response. I've noticed that, that when I begin to respond to my wife, she'll begin to respond to me. And then when she responds to me, I respond to her. And then she responds to me, and I respond to her. She responds to me, and I respond to her. And out of this, out of this little tango, Great things happen. <laughs> the only way for us to enter into his love's death is to begin to respond to his response. We've got to do that because we've got to be set free from fear. We've got to have courage and boldness be a part of our life. Without that, here's the real issue, is that fear, is, it's like anesthesia on our heart. Fear causes us to be comfortable with things that God is absolutely not comfortable with. At first we're not, but then after a while, it just puts our heart to sleep. Like we see people in need, and the Lord will say, I want you to help that person. And you go, but Lord, I, I don't really have that much in my own bank account. And so you end up saying no because of fear. The next time you encounter someone with me, you just say no, and your heart's asleep and you don't even feel anything. See, fear causes us to be comfortable with things that God is absolutely not comfortable with. 
It's one of the reasons that the scripture declares, remember your first love. It's one of the declarations of the scriptures, to remember your first love. I remember when you first met the Lord, how you felt. It's great, wasn't it? One of the reasons you felt like that when you first met the Lord is because you responded to Him. It wasn't because anything has actually changed. The way He feels about me now is exactly the way He felt back then. The only thing that's changed is usually our response to Him. So how do we get that feeling back? We'll just go back and do the things you used to do. What does that look like? Well, for instance, repentance. Like, it's the dirty word. It's basically the effort of the church, right? Repentance. Oh, that's what I did. I mean, I've already repented. No, repentance is a lifestyle. You begin to walk with a repenting heart and, a, and, a, and just a tender heart for the Lord. You begin to feel His affections again. It's, it's really radically magical. The things you used to do, bring those back in your life. It's like, it's like, some of us have been married for a while, and you go, wow, I don't, I wish I could feel about my life the way I used to. Well, jerk, why don't you just take her out on a date? <laughs> you used to take your wife on a date. You had magical feelings. <laughs> Amen. One of the things I realized after being married for 12 years, I still date my wife. I have magical feelings. That's the thing. Without courage and boldness, we can't walk out of our and we can't fulfill our part of the body function. Is the kingdom called to go make disciples? It's an offensive call. What do I mean by offensive? I'm not necessarily talking about going out and offending everybody. I'm just saying that the kingdom called will make disciples. It, it means that we're always on offense and we're never meant to play defense. It's, it's always about taking ground. That's why the issue of fear is such a big deal. It's about going into new territory. You know? Remember the first time you rode a, rode a roller coaster? It was scary. Why? Because you've never ridden one. I mean, you just saw 97 people get off of it alive. But when you set your butt in the seat the first time, you were scared. Right? Yeah. It's the same thing in the kingdom of heaven. He's calling us to, to, take, to take ground. The call to take ground is always going to be a fear issue. Until I feel his affections over me and know that he'll never leave me, I won't take any ground. I'll settle. I'll become comfortable with things that he's not comfortable with. It's offensive. It's always about new territory. It's about taking risks. Like a person who takes no risk will take no ground. The person who's more concerned about mistakes than they are about the future will live in the past and take no ground. How many realize that there's a reason that in the NFL, wide receivers, running backs, and quarterbacks make the most money? You know why they make the most money? Because they're on offense. And they get paid to score. There's a reason they have the glory. How many of you realize that, how many of you watch enough football know that when you're the wide receiver and you, you go across the middle, that there's a somebody, there's a linebacker, there's a Ray Lewis out there who wants to kill you. I mean, it, it's, I'm convinced it's one of the reasons that wide receivers in the NFL are totally nuts. Have you noticed it? They're all nuts. They have a different mindset. They're not, like, fear's not a part of the equation. See, you can, you can be afraid and play defense, but you can't be afraid and play offense. And there's more glory for people who live in fear. 
There's a reason the quarterbacks make the most money. There's a reason that when the guy who gets the handoffs and runs the ball, there's a reason he makes more money and has more glory. Because when he goes up the middle, someone's trying to kill him, and he can't see where they're coming from. They live with boldness. They live with courage. And they also live with glory. How many of y'all can... See, here's the deal. we got some crazy NFL fans in here. Like Andrew's probably the only guy who can do this. Andrew could probably... He's probably the one guy in the room who can name more than two cornerbacks in the NFL. You know why nobody knows cornerbacks? Because it doesn't take, it doesn't take, it doesn't take any great courage or boldness to be a cornerback in the NFL. You know who you're going to hit. You know your assignment. You're not going to get whacked. You're going to do it, right? You play wide receiver. Everybody knows who those guys are. They get whacked. You've got to overcome if you're going to take, you're going to take ground. And I'd like to suggest to you three things. If you're taking notes, just three little things. Three things that would completely change our community. Not just here, but in campus. And it wouldn't just change our own, it wouldn't just change our community, but it'd actually change us. Number one, I've seen this so many times. Number one, praying for the sick that we meet wherever we're at. One of the things that will, that will take ground in our community is to begin to be the kind of person who will pray for the sick wherever we're at. I've been doing this for 12 years. I've seen crazy people, absolute crazy people get healed in places that have nothing to do with church. I've seen people who don't know the Lord. I've seen people who, who curse the Lord get healed at crazy places with a 30-second prayer isn't awkward at all. It will totally change our community. Right along with that, praying for the sick that we meet wherever we're at and prophesying life to the hopeless wherever we're at. Those two have to be best. You know, we breathe that. We, we just, it's just like breathing in and out. When we meet somebody who has cancer, I mean, if, if I meet somebody who has cancer, I don't care where we're at. I mean, at the checkout line at Walmart. We're going to pray for them right now. We're going to ask the Spirit of God to touch them right there. A lady got healed at my store uh, on Friday afternoon. Totally healed. Couldn't move her shoulders. She came in for something for pain. I prayed a 30 second prayer. She walked out of the news. There was another person in the store that watched the whole thing. It feels awkward the first time or two you do it. After that, it's like whatever. And we hardly ever tell these stories at the beginning. They, they become like really normal. But if our community is going to change, that's part of the ground we have to take. We understand that going and getting nations, Jesus is talking about going into territories. He's talking about going and getting people. He's talking about going and invading cultures. And you're not supposed to do this stuff at work. Yeah, you are, actually. Like, if your kingdom doesn't work at work, it doesn't work. Like, if you're Jesus, and you good at school, then ain't good Jesus. It's everywhere. So, number one, pray for the sick anywhere we meet them and prophesying hope to the hopeless, wherever they're at. Number two, uh, living radically generous. Totally change our life. Totally change our community. Being a radically generous person. That means giving away a lot. Nothing like giving away a little money than giving up all your fear issues. Yeah, trust you, Jesus. Just don't take my bank account. Holla. And then one day we're like, okay, I give. I'll finally obey. We'll tie. And then Jesus is like, 
Oh, welcome to my kingdom. Now that you started tithing, this is what I want you to do. That neighbor you have, I want you to buy him a car. <laughs> and you're like, Jesus, I don't even have a good car. He goes, I don't care. I want you to buy him a car. I want you to put tires on that single mom's, on that single mom's car. Jesus, that's 400 bucks. We're going on vacation. He's either with you always or not. You know? Come on. Living radically generous. It'll change our community. And then number three, being a dabbler. It's part of what Matthew 28 is all about. Go and make disciples. Bring them into the family of God. Be a gatherer. There's a lot of ways to be a gatherer. And um, if you're, you know, if, if Campbell's builds your home, there's a lot of ways to go and make disciples. How many of you realize that you don't have to go on a mission trip ever to disciple the nations right in your family? Our university has hundreds of kids who come from all over the planet, and they think they came here to get an education. That's like one half of one percent of why they came here. Here's the deal. Every single, like there's, there's no reasons for, for kids from Osaka, Japan, to be in Camels with the Covenant. You realize that? <laughs> like maybe New York City, right? But not Camels with the Covenant. So when you meet the kid from Osaka, Japan, here's the thing you got to know. He's here for a reason. This kid's here to meet Jesus. This kid is here to get like life and purpose to go along with his education. This is a really big deal. And so Jesus is calling us to be gatherers. He's calling us to heal the sick cross our life, to give our stuff away, and it's calling us to be gatherers. And one of the best ways to be a gatherer is just open up your home. It's like people who are not your family and not comfortable coming in your house and taking a coat without asking you, something is jacked up. That's just, this is just basic kingdom living. Like you need to have a house where people can come in and eat your food and make a mess and it'll be okay. It actually, more change will happen by bringing someone and cooking a meal at your house and you cook uh, washing the dishes for you can get more change in an hour right there than you can six months eating a Bible and saying you can. It's a totally different kind of curve. Here's the other thing that Jesus would say to us this morning. The only thing you have to do is you just you just have to swing at the balls I'm pitching to you. You know? Just play the field that you've got. That's one of the things you want to say. But it's going to take courage and boldness to play the field that you've got. You don't have to go out and try to find more pictures. These pictures come to you all the time. Like every single person in this room is encountering sick and hopeless, broke, dysfunctional people every day. When you meet a sick, broken, hopeless, dysfunctional person, one of the things that needs to go off in your mind is, oh, this is Jesus. That's, that's the underhand pitch from Jesus right there. That's it, God. That's Jesus giving you a little while. You know? And Jesus has put you in center field. You don't have to go and play catch or two. Just play center field. Hit the pop-ups. Catch them. That's all you have to do. It's, it's part of normal life. I'm not, we're not saying, like, I'm not even beginning to suggest this morning that everybody in here has to go and sell everything they have and move to a foreign country. That's ridiculous. Play center field. Own it. But every every fly ball that comes into your territory, you catch it. Or you die trying. Right? And then, and then if you're on the ministry team this morning, I want you to come on up. <laughs>